It was uh, shortly before noon on a beautiful, crisp October morning in the 16th century, Geneva, when a solitary prisoner was escorted from the prison out to the gates of the city, and there his sentence was read. For the crimes of blasphemy and heresy, you are hereby sentenced to death by burning. And so, within an hour, the flames had consumed the body of one Michael Servetus, arch-heretic, troubler of Christendom, denier vigorously and persistently the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That event, perhaps like no other, has colored people's view of the Reformation. People still argue about the death of Michael Servetus to this day. And many look upon the great reformer John Calvin and his role in such an event with hatred, disgust. It has done irreparable damage to that great reformer. It's not my purpose to try to defend Calvin's part in this tragedy other than to say this, that John Calvin was a product of his time just like you and I are a product of our time. And in the 16th century in Europe, an ecclesiastical crime, that is, to be guilty of the offense of blasphemy and heresy, was also a civil crime. The government and the church were so wound and interwoven together that to commit a crime against one was to commit a crime against the other. The danger to the church was considered a danger to society at large. And thus it was universally or almost universally held that civil penalties were an appropriate means of dealing with ecclesiastical crimes. We don't live in the 16th century Europe. We live today in a day of great tolerance. And I thank God that we do. I thank God that we live in a country that was founded upon the notion that spiritual belief is a matter of one's conscience and that what one believes is no place for the government to intrude. We're blessed to live here in this time and place. We have, as citizens of this country, a civil right to believe anything we want about Jesus Christ or to believe nothing at all. But make no mistake about this. 
because we have a civil right to believe whatever we want about Jesus Christ, that does not mean that God grants the same privilege. What we have as a civil privilege under government is not what we have by God Himself. We do not have a right to believe whatever we want about Jesus Christ from God's point of view. Teaching and believing wrongly about Christ is a sin. It is a sin. And it is a sin that must be repented of. And if it is not, God will punish it. And He will punish it in a way that makes the burning of Michael Servetus pale in significance. What you believe about Christ, what you teach about Christ, is of the utmost importance. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Page 1226 in those few Bibles, if that's what you're using. We're going to look, begin to look at the church at Thyatira, beginning in verse 18. In this text, we will learn that God does not tolerate, and neither should His church, heretical views about who Christ is. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and His feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Stop right there. Thyatira is the city to whom this letter is addressed. It's the next one on the postal delivery route, if you will. Turning southeast from Pergamum, where we were last week, the traveler would proceed about 40 miles inland over a low set of mountains and down into a very fertile valley. Originally, the city of Thyatira was established as a military outpost. There are no natural defenses for this particular area, and so this military outpost was really nothing more than a place to delay an evading army that was attacking the more significant city of Pergamum. So needless to say, through the third and fourth centuries, lacking natural defenses and being but an outpost, Thyatira was repeatedly overwhelmed 
and destroyed by invading armies. In 190 B.C., the city passed into Roman hands and Thyatira began to prosper. It was an interesting city. It had neither religious nor political significance. It was essentially what we would call a blue-collar town. Thyatira was known for its tradesmen, its craftsmen. The city had a number of what are called trade guilds. Trade guilds, uh, roughly equivalent to what we would consider a labor union today. This region, this fertile valley, was known for its manufacturing and marketing prowess. According to the archaeologist and Bible scholar William Ramsey, the various trade guilds represented in Thyatira were woodworkers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. So you can get a flavor for the kind of industry that went on in the city of Thyatira. Apparently, Lydia introduced to us over in Acts chapter 16, right? Paul's first convert in Europe, the city of Philippi. We're told that Lydia came from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple fabrics. I think in today's parlance, we would say that Lydia was a manufacturer's representative living in Philippi, apparently doing well for herself, selling the product produced back home. There was not a large Jewish community there. It was very nominal in that part of Asia Minor. Nor were they particularly devoted to emperor worship. So some of the challenges that were faced by other churches earlier that we read about were not faced by the church at Thyatira. But trade guilds, labor unions dominated this region. And they were in one way very much unlike the labor unions that you and I know, and that is that they each trade guild had a patron deity, a, a particular pagan idol to whom they were devoted and to whom they believed, uh, offered their worship, believing that that idol oversaw their industry and gave them the ability to prosper. So to belong to a trade guild meant that you were obligated to participate in these periodic festivals whereby you would celebrate the, the prosperity that the pagan idol had brought to your particular trade. The celebration consisted of a big fancy meal in which the wine would be flowing freely. And then it was, as was typical of paganism of that day and indeed paganism of even today, things would descend into debauchery. Sexual immorality would begin to occur after the time of eating and drinking. If you as a Christian, a new convert to Jesus Christ and a member of a trade guild were offended in your conscience by such behavior and attempted to leave before the wine began to flow and the meal was served, you'd be subject to intense ridicule 
by your fellow employees and possibly even loss of job. If you were to be kicked out of the trade guild, you would no longer be able to work. There would be no income for your family. thinking about this whole idea of the the feast, the banquet, and the free-flowing wine, and then the sexual immorality that followed, and it reminded me of a few company Christmas parties that I've attended through the years, not certainly church parties, but in many years ago in banking. Maybe some of you can identify at some of those kinds of events. But this was life for the believer in Thyatira. And so to this little obscure church, nothing significant here, Jesus Christ pens His longest and most difficult letter. Interpretively, this is a a difficult letter to deal with. There's a lot of fog that kind of shrouds this letter. Not the least of which is its antiquity, right? It's 2,000 years old. But beyond that is, is there's, a, there's a kind of a lack of archaeological evidence that can come into play and, and help round out our understanding of all that was going on here. So we're going to make our best attempt at interpreting this letter and applying it today. I've given you a handout as I customarily do. And in there, we've given you that same chart we're using for all seven of these churches. And as we work through the chart this week and next, we will begin to look at the five facets of Christ's examination of the church at Thyatira. We must understand so that we can discern what makes for a great church in God's eyes. All right. So let's begin together verse 18 with the command to the church, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Our introduction here to Jesus Christ is calling again back upon chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the vision that John had earlier of, of Christ there in glory. But it's supplemented by this title that he takes to himself, the Son of God. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where Jesus applies that title to himself, Son of God. Later on, if you'll let your eyes just drop down, verses 26-27, you'll notice that there we have a, a quote, citation drawn out of Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 there, the Messianic Psalm, clearly acknowledged as such. And in particular, verses 8 and 9 of that Messianic Psalm are very much a part of, of the, what's going on here. They're very much in the mind of Jesus Christ Himself as He addresses this church. So over there in Psalm 2, you can turn there if you like, you don't have to, but in Psalm 2, Beginning in verse 7, we have what's called the enthronement ceremony. Where the psalmist says, I will surely tell of the degree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. 
Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Back in Psalm 2, that enthronement ceremony, the ascended Jesus Christ, and by the way, the writer of the Hebrews picks up on that, Hebrews 1.5, and applies it to Jesus Christ when He ascended to sit down at the right hand of the Father in glory. His mission here of redemption accomplished. And He said, sit down at My right hand, Thou art My Son. You are enthroned. Waiting for the day the enemies are put under your feet. They become a footstool for your feet. You will return to receive your millennial kingdom. So it's very much in the mind of Jesus Christ as He addresses this church that He is the enthroned One. He is the Ascended One. He is the Messiah of God. So He says to Himself, the Son of God. By the way, that expression communicates oneness with God. That's what's being communicated there. One who shares attributes with God. It is a divine messianic title. And I think perhaps the reason that Jesus self-consciously takes that title to Himself in this letter is because these poor people need to know that it is not the local pagan idol that prospers their lives and their trade guilds. It is the ascended Christ. That they, they need not bow down before false idols. It is the ascended Christ to whom they owe allegiance. He's reiterating His divinity to them here. And so, He, the Son of God, and going on to describe Himself with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze, the Flaming fire emphasizing His sovereign ability to see and penetrate all that's going on. His ability to probe the inner man, to to ferret out the seductive arguments of the false teachers that we will encounter here. The one with eyes of fire, they penetrate. The ones with feet of burnished bronze or polished bronze. Symbolizing strength and splendor and purity. This is the one who knows his church. This is the one who is able to see clearly the situation. This is the one who is soon to give this church a very stern rebuke. To call them back to fidelity. Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze says this. And he begins in verse 19 with a commendation. There is a commendation for this little fellowship. They are not doing everything wrong. There's something to be recognized here. And so what is it? He says, I know your deeds. Your love, faith, service, and perseverance. That your deeds of late are greater than at first. With a perfect knowledge complete understanding of the situation, Jesus commends, and again, as we said, through this whole section using second person singular pronouns, writing to, I believe, the pastor and through him to the fellowship, he commends them for their spiritual growth. He says there has been some spiritual growth here in this church. 
I know your deeds. Love, faith, service, perseverance. By the way, grammatically, the way these nouns are, are uh, strung together here is, is illustrative or important to, to take a look at. Deeds is the major idea. I know your deeds. That's the big idea here. And then that is illustrated. And it's described in the terms of love and faith. I know your deeds consisting of love and faith. Illustrated by service and perseverance. So basically what he is telling this church, idiomatically, if we were to translate this, is I know your deeds that consist of love shown by service and faith shown by perseverance. Love and faith are not, they're abstract. They're, they're abstract qualities. They're motivating factors. They need to be revealed in the physical world to be observed. And, and the way they're done, the way they're, they're revealed here is through things like Service and perseverance. Service to God. Perseverance in the face of oppression and idolatry. So when we kind of string it together that way, we get a better understanding of really what he's talking about to this church. He's saying that you, you are showing... By your deeds, your commitment to Jesus Christ. You do have a commitment. This is not an apostate church. Not only that, notice verse 19 that your deeds of late are greater than at first. You're not just treading water. You're not standing still. You're making progress. This church is going somewhere and it's, it's going in the right direction. With time, they've improved. They've progressed. They've become more commendable. Jesus is recognizing spiritual progress. That's got to give hope. That's got to give hope to this small community. The question is, is how are we doing in terms of spiritual progress? When Jesus evaluates your life and your deeds, is He seeing progress? Where are you this year compared to last in terms of your love and faith, your service and perseverance in Christ? Is there a growing edge to your Christianity? Or are you stagnant? Are you complacent? I know your deeds, he says. And I know you're making progress. Beloved, if the letter ended right here, we would have to conclude that this was one excellent church. Right? If this were the end of the letter, we would conclude that this is a church that is truly worth modeling. There is virtue here. Solid Christian virtue. And it's growing, he says. But there's a problem too. There's a cancer in this communion. 
And it's a deadly cancer that is growing. There is a fatal flaw in this church. They have become tolerant of evil teaching. Tolerant of evil teaching. Verse 20, do you see it? But I have this against you. I have this against you. There is a very serious problem in this church. What is it? Verse 20, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. The problem with this church is revealed in the statement you tolerate. This is a tolerating church. What that means is that the danger to this church is not external, but internal. It is not a force from the outside that is going to, that the church is in danger of being overwhelmed by. The danger is from the inside. It is not a pagan deity. It is a false prophetess. Right? You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Notice who calls herself a prophetess. You have within you blasphemy and heresy and you know it. And you're not doing anything about it. You're not doing anything about it. The guilt of the church here at Thyatira exceeds by an order of magnitude the guilt of even their neighbor church, Pergamum. And Pergamum had there, right, those that adhered to the dangerous teaching of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. And that was a very serious problem, verses 14-15. Even verse 16, Jesus says, Repent or I'm coming quickly, I'll make war against you. The church at Pergamum was in serious danger, but their danger doesn't even compare to the danger at Thyatira. The church at Pergamum didn't realize the danger until it was pointed out. The church at Thyatira knows the danger and tolerates it anyway. They recognize the evil nature of the teaching going on from this woman Jezebel and they're not willing to do anything about it. This is a very direct rebuke of the leadership of this local congregation. Now, who was this self-proclaimed prophetess, the church of Thyatira? Jesus doesn't reveal who she really was. There have been all kinds of speculations. But we don't know who she was. All we know is who she imitated. And so Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament to pull forward something that should be well familiar to the minds of all of the people. One of the most evil characters to traverse the pages of the Old Testament. Jezebel. Jezebel. Daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians given in marriage to Ahab, king of the northern tribes of Israel. 
according to the account, it begins in 1 Kings chapter 16 and follows for many chapters. This woman Jezebel was evil incarnate. It was her stated goal which she pursued with a bloodthirsty vigor of eliminating the worship of Yahweh in the northern kingdom and substituting in its place the worship of Baal. How did she do this? Well, among other ways, by slaughtering the prophets of God, right? This lady was fearsome. This lady was intimidating. This lady drove the great prophet Elijah to run for his life. Do you remember? She was a tough customer. Even at the very end of her days. You remember the story, right? She realizes her days, her hours are numbered and says she painted her face. I believe it was Jay who drove in and said, throw out the window. And they did. They drove his chariot over. The dogs consumed her. But in this person was the contest for the heart and soul of the people of Israel. And so Jesus carries that image forward here to Thyatira. And He talks about this woman Jezebel. It's not that she had the name Jezebel. It's that she imitated the character of Jezebel. She was a Jezebel lookalike. And she was doing the exact same thing. She was devastating the church at Thyatira. She was seducing the people of God away from the truth. Influencing them to participate in pagan feasts and immorality. Right? Look at verse 20. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. The very activities that were forbidden almost 50 years before at the Jerusalem Council. Apparently, this woman had some position of considerable authority in this church. A position of teaching authority. And she was exercising influence over the congregation. Now, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, he expressly forbids such things. So the church is in violation of that apostolic command there by allowing this woman to, to assume a position of authority and teaching within the fellowship. Somehow she become elevated within the congregation, but it's, it's even deeper and greater than that. And that is that she has a teaching role, but she's teaching... Heresy. It's a false teacher. Beyond that, the church leadership knew about it and were tolerating it. What's going on here is a crisis of authority. There is a crisis of authority in this church. To whom will they submit? Will they submit to 
the apostles who have instructed them you are not to participate in idle meat and immoralities, right? Acts 15, verse 29. Or will they listen to this self-proclaimed prophetess who claims that she has a word from God? Who will they listen to? Will they hear the word of the apostles? Or will they hear the one who claims God speaks to her. Beloved, we have the same crisis in the church today. Will the church listen to the word of the apostles given to us where? The Scriptures. Or will it listen to one who claims that God speaks directly to them? Which will it be? We can guess at her teaching here. The thrust of it was probably something like this. Since an idol has no real existence, that's what the Apostle Paul said over 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We know that idols are not real. They're not real gods. They're made of wood and stone and so forth. So we know they're not real. And so there's, we shouldn't really hesitate to just go along with it. Just get along. Go ahead and participate in the festivities at the trade guild. It's not going to hurt you. It seems to be her the gist of what she's teaching and promoting. And the way she does it is not by claiming biblical support. Right? Look at verse 20 again. She calls herself a prophetess. She says that God speaks directly to her. That's how she knows. The source of her authority and the source of the message that she is communicating to this church and apparently with some great measure of success is that God talks directly to me and this is what He told me. And the fact that it contradicts the clear and explicit word of the apostles doesn't trouble her a bit. Apparently, it doesn't trouble the church enough as it should either. You know, she falls in line with the long list of false prophets, false teachers who have continually troubled the people of God. This is not just some interesting, isolated, historical example this is an ongoing problem and has been through all the pages of the Scriptures. To whom will you listen? Isn't that what Elijah said on Mount Carmel? Right? And then he proposed a challenge. Don't you remember it? You know, go ahead. You, you pray to your God, you know, and see what He'll do. And, of course, there was no God there and Elijah took great delight in taunting them over that fact. But he says, choose this day who you will serve. It's the message that Joshua gave the people. It's been the consistent message that God gives to His people. Choose who you will serve. 
Make a decision. Get on board. The true prophet of God, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23. Don't turn there, just write this down. You can check it on your own. Jeremiah 23, verses 9 through 39, condemns the false prophets of his day. Those that were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And Jeremiah there identifies four grounds or, or, or um, well, what do I want to call it? Uh, um, common characteristics of a false prophet. Four of them. He says they are immoral in character. They commit adultery and they walk in falsehood. Jeremiah 23, verses 13 and 14. He says they speak from their own imagination, not from God. Verse 16. They contradict the Scriptures. Third, he says they seek popular acclaim by proclaiming that God is pleased when He is not. Verses 17 to 22. And then finally, they plagiarize or steal from each other messages that allegedly have come from God. They preach each other's sermons. That's fascinating to me, by the way, that Jeremiah would identify those common characteristics. Because, beloved, you can turn on the TV you can turn on the TV and you can find those common characteristics today. Seducing people away from their God. Notice verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Past tense verb, I gave her time. Evidently, at some point in the past, God had used someone to confront this woman. To give her opportunity to repent of this sin, and she refused. Many commentators, I think I would join them in this, believe it was probably the Apostle John himself. That the Apostle John, prior to his imprisonment on Patmos, had confronted this woman. And she refused him. She refused the rebuke. She refused it then. Look at 21. She continues to refuse it now. Her heart is hard. And as we will see next week, her judgment is certain. She does not want to repent of her immorality. I think the immorality being talked of here is not sexual in nature. He's talking as frequently in the Old Testament prophets. He's talking about the immorality of false teachers. False doctrine. The idea that the people of God are wed to God. And so to be attracted away to a non-God is to commit spiritual idolatry. I think that's what he's talking about here. This church is in a bad way. It's in a bad way. They have refused the word of the apostles. And the purity of the church has suffered. 
It's almost inconceivable. You know, when, you, when you're reading this, it begins with that good, strong commendation, doesn't it? They're growing, it says. And then he comes right back at them and, and he says, but there's this huge problem. What that means, beloved, is that, is that there, there are churches out here that can be doing well in many things and still have this canker eating away at them. Mark this down. Bad doctrine leads to bad living. Okay, if you want a takeaway this morning, there's your takeaway. Bad doctrine leads to bad living. What we believe really does matter. It is very understandable why Michael Servetus was burned. He's the father of the modern day Unitarians. He was Arian in his theology, spiritual descendant of that arch heretic Arius himself, the second century. It's understandable in their time and age why they dealt like they did. They took doctrine seriously. Very seriously. We live in a day and age when people don't care about anything. Let's figure out what's the minimum amount I have to believe in order to be a Christian. What's the irreducible minimum? Just, just tell me what the minimum I have to believe. That's all I want. Let's take the great creeds of the church and boil them down. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? Right? That'll unify us. You know, Christ has given His church a means to deal with this kind of a situation. It's called church discipline. It's called church discipline. It's kind of a forgotten and forgotten behavior, I guess, or practice within the church today. It's a painful process, by the way. But it is God's ordained means. You, you realize, you know, Christ reveals the church in Matthew 16, right? That's his first clue of the church. He didn't get very far to Matthew 18 when he begins to talk about the purity of the church and how to maintain it. It's a process by which a person is confronted to repent with the hopes that they do and are drawn back into the fellowship. But if they refuse, it's a means by which they are pushed out for the health of the body. If you've ever seen church discipline practice, it's been frequently done for issues of moral failure. But do you realize that heresy is a Crime justifying church discipline? Believing that about Jesus Christ which is not true is something, it's a sin that needs to be repented of. And if you're in a position where you are teaching that kind of heresy, you need to repent or be pushed out. The problem with this church is they knew it and they weren't doing anything about it. It's kind of the opposite of the church at Ephesus, isn't it? All right, take a look. Let your eyes go back there. Verse 2, chapter 2. I know your deeds, says to the church there, your toil and perseverance that you cannot endure evil men 
and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false. That's their commendation. Perseverance. Endurance. Verse verse 4, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Here in Thyatira, they've got love. But it's a squishy kind of love, I guess. Love that makes them unwilling to confront. You know, beloved, the uh, doctrinal integrity of this church is the responsibility of the elders. We are held responsible by God to maintain the doctrinal integrity of this church. Titus 1.9 makes that very clear. Man is not qualified to be an elder if he is unable to contradict those or refute those who contradict the truth. But it is not the elders alone. There is a sense in which it is the obligation of all of us. That means you. It is your obligation as well. When a church is ravaged by false teachers and false teaching, there is a sense in which the congregation at large bears some responsibility. If you don't think that's true, then you have not read your Old Testament very closely. Because as the false teachers ravaged the nation of Israel, God held the people responsible. They had a means of knowing what was true, right? Deuteronomy 18, 13. But they refused. And the nation was judged. Churches have a responsibility as well. The membership has a responsibility as well. It is a, is a real issue. That means it's incumbent upon you to be sufficiently schooled in orthodoxy to know false teaching when you hear it. And identify a false teacher when you see him or her. And I'll say it again, if you want a good look, just turn on the TV. They will parade across the screen in front of you. We are blessed as a congregation with tremendous resources. There is a library down that hill that has over 9,000 volumes. That's a treasure that some Bible schools don't have. There's a bookstore around the corner here on campus in which there are books available to grow you. Hand-chosen. So that you don't have to walk through the stacks of the local Christian bookstore or open the magazines of the big catalog house in which half the pages should be torn off and thrown away. Books that can grow you in your spiritual walk. There's a Bible school here on campus which you can attend class for the price of a Big Mac. Which would do you a lot more good than eating a Big Mac. Right? I mean, the tools are laying on the ground. Will you pick them up? And if you do pick them up, do you know how to use them? It is your responsibility. Will you roll up your sleeves and dig in? Let's pray.
Our Father, the Scriptures make it quite clear that we are involved in a spiritual war. Our enemies are not flesh and blood that shoot bullets and drop bombs. It is a spiritual warfare. And it is a warfare in which the prize is the hearts and minds of men and women, boys and girls. Not physical territory that could pass back and forth as one army overruns the other in a battle. But it is a territory that's for keeps. That the results of the battles are eternal. Lord God, we are, whether we like it or not, we have to acknowledge we're engaged. And so may You use this reminder this morning to increase our level of Vigilance. Lord, help us to think seriously on these things. Help us to make application this week. Drive it deep into our hearts, we pray. In the name of the Son of God, who walks among His churches with flaming eyes and feet of burnished bronze. Amen.